Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Let's start on page 878. So this is... Uh, Excuse this young man? This young man is Aton Whitman. This is my grandson, Aton Whitman. Hi! So good to have you. Eitan is 10 years old. Okay. Page 878. 878. This is an insight I shared before with some of you that I heard from Sivan Rahab Meir. And it's just an incredible insight. She points out there are four words in this week's parsha, the parsha's Pinchas, that are the most optimistic words in the entire Torah. And it's on page 878, near the bottom of the page, Pasuk number 11. Who is the person you're quoting? Sivan Rahav Meir. Sivan Rahav Meir is an amazing person. She is a television uh, journalist in Israel. And she is also a Torah teacher. She teaches classes one in every week on the Parsha, one, one on in Tel Aviv on Sunday night and one in Yerushalayim on Wednesday nights. And they are perhaps the one of the most highly attended regular lectures, I guess, in the world. There are like four, five, six hundred people that come to her shiurim. Uh, she's a great teacher. She's written some books. She writes articles. She, she's a, an amazing person. I, and I quote her a lot. She's, a, she's become a real hero of mine. Four most optimistic word, words in the Torah. This week's parsha, page 878, Pusik number 11, near the bottom of the page. Uvnei korach lo mesu. And the children, the sons of Korach, did not die. So let's just orient ourselves. This week's Parsha begins with the aftermath of last week's Parsha, but that comes on the heels of several different um, difficult narratives, and one that we read about it a few weeks ago was Korach. Korach started a rebellion against Moshe. He gathered together some other people, and there was kind of a showdown. We spoke about this uh, on that parsha, and uh, there was this public miracle. Hashem created this miracle that Korach and his followers were swallowed up into the earth. Hashem proving that they were wrong and Moshe was right. And now, later, the Torah is now starting the mode of reviewing the events over the previous 40 years and that's going to lead into the book of Devardim which is primarily about reviewing the events of the previous 40 years and preparation for entering the land of Israel and in the context of that the Torah says Uvnei Korach lo mesu, the sons of Korach did not die it's an amazing thing because I mean they were right there in fact, the Torah tells us that they were among the first to start the rebellion with their father. 
And the Torah says that they were all involved. And at that point, the Torah did not specify exactly who was swallowed up into the earth and who was not. And here we have what is kind of a surprising message. All of a sudden we learn they didn't die. Why didn't they die? So Rashi says, They were the first to give the advice to their father to start this rebellion. They were the worst of the sinners in the rebellion. But at the moment of the divisiveness of the machlokes, when actually the showdown happened, they regretted and they they repented of theirs at the last minute they did not participate and because of that they were not punished so here's the lesson you can be I'm not talking to anybody here God forbid <laughs> but you can be the son of Korach And you are not colored by the actions of your parents. If chas v'shalom, they're negative. You don't have to be tied to the negativity of your past. You have the ability, every individual has the ability to disconnect themselves with the negativity of the past. You have the ability to create your own choices and through your choices create your own path and even if you are on a path and you are heading for the cliff even at the last moment you can decide to divert yourself and create your own path. And there are people not referring to anybody here but there are people who grew, grow up in an environment that God forbid is not a good environment and they grow up with role models that God forbid are not the right role models and they grow up with things that are God forbid negative and then they may think to themselves or others may think well how could I be any different how could I be expected to, to, to be any different? Look how I was brought up. Look what I saw around me. Look what I experienced in my, in my youth. Ubne korach lo mesu. No one. Hopefully everybody is connected in color to the positive things in their past. But no one needs to be connected to the negative things in their past, in their upbringing, in their history. We have the right to choose. How do you know that? Where do you see that? Ubne korach it's an amazing, amazing insight. It also seems that this is an example of where Kaved et Avicha would not apply when, when the parents are... That's correct. So and, and that's correct. And, and the Talmud specifically says that uh, we're, we're obligated to honor and respect our parents. By the way, we're honored to, we're required to honor and respect our parents even if they do something wrong, but we should listen to our parents unless they tell us to do something is wrong. Then we have a prior parent 
in quotation marks, which is God, which we're required to listen to first. But even there, we're still required to act with honor and respect to our parents, even if we respectfully decline to follow their their uh, Okay. I now want to turn in um, somewhat of a different direction than we've been doing normally. And um, uh, more of a... Um, I guess you would say a legal discussion. And I'll ask you, well, let me start with this introduction. I've shared some of this with some of you before in different contexts. So, Jewish law has a completely different approach to the subject of inheritance than in secular law. And there are uh, practical <coughs> ramifications of this, and there are also philosophical ramifications of this. And that's what I want to discuss with you for the rest of this evening. So turn, please, to page... First, turn to page 1046. I know it's not our Parsha. <laughs> It, yeah, but it is our Torah. It's a great line. Page 1046. The subject of inheritance and the laws about inheritance take place in two short passages in the Torah. Only two. And here's one of them. Page 1046. Pasuk number Tesvav 15. When there shall be a man who has two wives, which let me just give you a piece of advice, it's not a smart thing to do. And it never works out. But, one of them he loves, one of them, God forbid, it's not even nice to use the words, he hates. And again, this is a kind of a prediction of the natural course of events. It's not going to work out. But the Torah means to say, it doesn't mean to say, God forbid, you should hate one wife. It means to say, even in a case where one of them is preferred and one of them is not preferred, the old him, and they both give birth to sons, so they share the same father but different mothers. So when it comes to the laws of inheritance, sons inherit their father. So, sons from different wives are equivalent in inheriting their father because they have the same father. And it turns out that the firstborn son is the son born, firstborn to the wife that is less appreciated, I'll say, than the other. In that case... When it comes time that the father passes away and leaves his estate to be inherited by his sons, he does not have the right to choose the younger son who is the son of his preferred wife to give him an extra share of the inheritance. Rather, 
Next pasuk, Yudzayin seventeen. Ki has a bechor ben asnua yakir lasis lapishnayim. The firstborn, even if it is the son of the less preferred wife, the firstborn repeat receives pishnayim, a double portion. In everything that is in the estate of the father at the moment that he passes away, the firstborn receives a double share. So, what the Torah really means to say is if a, a man has more than, let's say, sons, when he passes away, his heirs are his sons and they inherit, and the firstborn son receives a double portion. So, if there are three sons, let's say, then you divide the estate into four equal portions. Firstborn receives two, others receive one, and that's how it's distributed. The Torah is, Rav Shantral for Hirsch explains this, the Torah is give you an example to show how far it goes, even if you might think that there's an emotional reason to prefer giving a double portion to another son, even then, the firstborn gets the double portion and the others get one. You don't have the right to decide. So, what you see from this, again, let's stick with an example where a man has several sons only. Let's just stick with that for a moment. What you see from this is that inheritance is not the way secular law thinks about it, where I have the right to write a will and direct who I want to get what. At the biblical level, there's no such thing. Inheritance is automatic with a set formula. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. It happens automatically. So it's not like in a secular system where the estate is probated and a court orders where it goes. This happens automatically. I'll just give you an example. Let's say, take a simple case of, of, of one son. So he inherits everything. Automatically, if the father passes away and left a um, tree, a field with a tree, and um, a minute after the father passes away, somebody is walking under the tree, God forbid the tree falls down and hurts them. So who has to pay the damages? Not the father's estate. The son. Because at the moment of the father's death, the field immediately becomes his. The tree immediately becomes his. Somebody got hurt. Someone gets hurt from a tree that falls on my property. I'm responsible for the damages. So the, the, trend, the transfer is automatic and immediate. And there is a set pattern. First born son gets two shares the others get one share. Hold on. Not there yet. Oh yeah, what about the wife? <laughs> Same answer. Same answer. Hold on. <laughs> Just sons right now. Okay. Why should the firstborn son get a larger portion than the other sons? Roshan Shalfal Hirsch explains. There are other answers, but this is his answer. It is a recognition of the role that a firstborn son is supposed to play 
When the father passes away, the firstborn son is supposed to take over the responsibility of making sure that everyone is okay and everyone has what they need. And therefore, he is given by the Torah a larger portion in order to ensure that he uses it to take care of his family. The phrase that the Gemara uses is Ben Mamale Makam Aviv. The firstborn son is supposed to take the position, the role of the father in looking after the family, and in lieu of that, he gets this double portion. The why is it? Forget about who gets what for a moment. But why is it that there is a system? which is set and automatic as opposed to why shouldn't I have the right to decide on my own? Why do I have to, why is there a default that I can't change? There's a very, very important answer for that and I'm going to come back to this a little bit later and that is because from the Torah point of view it's more important that there be a set known process to reduce machlokas. <laughs> I write a will. I say I want him to have a little more and her to have a little less and him to... Eh, eh. Everyone starts arguing. I've got nothing to do with it. The Torah says it's automatic. I didn't do anything. This is how it is. No one should get upset about it. Okay, we're going to come back to that subject a little bit later. Is that only for the land of Israel or forever? This is not connected to the land of it. This, this halakha applies anywhere. So it's really supposed to apply right now? Hold on, I'm coming okay. to that. Okay. <laughs> what about daughters? Yeah. I know you asked about wives. Yeah, we'll get to wives. Yeah. But what about daughters? Yeah. Daughters is our parsha. So if you turn now, please, to page 886. The reason I'm discussing this is because the second of the two passages is in our Parsha, page 886. Page 886, the top of the page. This is now a narrative from near the end of the 40 inheriting the land of Israel. I'm going to come back to this point also, but just keep in mind the terminology and the metaphor that is used for the Jewish people taking ownership of the land of Israel is the terminology and metaphor of inheritance. Even though technically speaking it's not technically, legally an inheritance. It's going to be divided by Joshua, Yehoshua, but the terminology and the metaphor is a metaphor of inheritance. I'm going to come back to that point later. We've already spoken about Tzalafchad, if you remember, a few weeks ago. So Tzalafchad was a man and he had five daughters. No sons, five daughters. And the daughters of Tzalafchad came before Moshe Pasuk Beis and they said number three Avinu Meis Midbar, Our father passed away while in the desert. And they add and he was not part of Korach. We talked about that Pasuk before. Okay. 
But then they say, Pasuk Dalet, Lama yigarashe mavini mitoch mishpakto? Ki ain lo bain. Our father died without any sons, only five daughters. If we understand correctly what is written down only later in the Torah, that only sons inherit and not daughters, what's going to happen to us? How come we won't get any share? Moshe says, you know what? That's a very good question. And now Moshe does something that no other person ever in human history has been able to do. He says, Pasuk, hey, hold on one second. Let me ask God. <laughs> Moshe says, I'll ask Hashem and he'll tell us what to do. It's quite, a, it's quite an ability. Now Pasuk 7. Have a good, a good argument. They're right. And here's the law. The law is like this. If a man dies and leaves sons and daughters, the sons inherit and the daughters do not inherit. Hold your question for a moment. <laughs> if the man, a man dies and leaves only daughters, the daughters divide the inheritance equally. Each get an equal share. There's no concept of a double portion for a firstborn daughter, they each get an equal portion. And that's the law. That's halach. So let me ask you a question. Why is it that if a man dies and leaves sons and daughters, that the sons inherit and the daughters do not? Why exclude daughters? And for that matter, why exclude the wife? She's not discussed anywhere in the, in the Torah itself. So the answer, or the, the beginnings of the answer, is in the Mishnah. And the Mishnah says as follows. When the sons inherit they are required to then support the wife and the daughters. Let me just clarify what that means. That means for the wife, as long as she remains unmarried to anyone else, and the daughters, as long as, long as they are unmarried, including their marriage and weddings, all expenses are paid for them. That includes the wife being allowed to stay in the same home, whatever expenses that entails. And that includes, this is so important, the standard of living that applied during the father's lifetime. The sons are not allowed to diminish the living situation or the standard of living in any way, including weddings and wedding expenses of the standard while the husband was alive or if there was a previous wedding in the family of that earlier standard of a wedding. So if, if that was prime rib, this is prime rib. If that was chicken, this is chicken, but you know, depends what it was. 
Okay. Now, but you may ask the following question. Well, hold on a second. Why do they get support? Why don't they just get the same inheritance like the sons? And you should be able to figure out that there is an economic trade-off, which goes like this. In a case where the inheritance is medium or smaller, the daughters are going to come out ahead because they still get the full support. But in a case where the inheritance is gigantic, let's say billions of dollars, well then the daughters are going to lose out because they're going to get very, very nice support, but it, it, it probably won't um, uh, uh, equal the billions and billions that the sons are going to get. So why should the daughters get their payment in a different route, which it's a bit of a, you could call it a gamble. They might do better, they might do worse. Why should it be like that? So I want to share with you a very important approach. I am not saying that this answer is going to satisfy everybody. But it is a legally correct answer. And it goes like this. When heirs, whoever they are, when heirs inherit, what do they do with the money? Well, they could do whatever they want after they have satisfied the father's creditors. If the father owed money, if the father owed money, the son's children are not required to pay that back from their own money. It is not true in Jewish law that a child is responsible for the father's debts or obligations from their own money. However, the father's estate is indebted and must be paid before the sons get to take anything for themselves. In Jewish law, creditors are tiered. You can have, because, let's say you have several creditors. You owe money to several people. Well, who gets paid first? Secular law has its own way of dealing with that. But Jewish law assigns a priority. First creditor, second creditor, third creditor. And the first creditor has what in legal terminology is called a prior lien. Gets satisfied first before anybody else. A man can pass away with all kinds of debts. It could be a mortgage, it could be a business thing, all kinds of debts. And there is the debt of the support to the wife and the support to the daughters. Jewish law says that the obligation to the wife and the daughters is a prior lien, which means it comes before every single other creditor. Which means... 
it also comes before the sons because the sons are last. In other words, in probably most situations, the daughters and the wife are going to receive... In all situations, the daughters and the wife are going to receive before the sons. And by the way, since you may not know how much you're going to require in the future, because it can't just be a lump sum. You don't know how long it's going to last. The sons are required to put funds in escrow and not touch them so that they will always be available before the sons can take anything for themselves. So if you think about it, there's a trade-off. And by the way, it's the same trade-off as every investor makes. You have a trade-off. You can take a lower interest rate, but it's more secure. You can try for a higher interest rate, but it's a gamble. You can take a, 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 a treasury bill or a money market account, pays very little interest, but it's as solid as the bank. Or you could try for 20% return on, you know, some, but it's a gamble. Which one would you prefer? I'm not asking you. The rabbis of the Talmud said, we assert on behalf of all women and daughters that women and daughters will prefer a lesser return but greater security. So, we're going to form it as support in order to be able to create a prior lien, in order to know, wife and daughters will know, unless there's nothing. I mean, you know, there could be nothing, in which case, if there's nothing, there's nothing. You can't take it from a stone. But if there's anything, they have the security of knowing that they will get first, with the trade-off of, there could have been an upside if it was gigantic, that's a trade-off. Now, you're welcome to disagree with what the rabbis uh, uh, decided, but that's what the rabbis decided, and that's the reason that it's structured in this way. That assumes, however, that the sons who receive this, in fact, are going to act properly as they're supposed to. It's one thing for me, the Mishnah, to say, support your wife, the mother, the wife, in the standard of living to which you is accustomed, but when it gets down to it, as we all know, it does not always happen. And there came a time when rabbis recognized that this system was not working the way it was intended. And so the rabbis came up with a solution. They said, it's the right thing for a father to arrange to leave to all of his children, sons and daughters, an equal amount. Don't rely on the sons taking care of the daughters. Give an equal amount. Well, but the question is, uh, how do you do that? 
in a way that doesn't contradict the Torah's laws. So the answer comes already from the time of the Mishnah, where the Mishnah says, all of these laws that we've been talking about so far, they only apply to inheritance. What does inheritance mean? It means whatever a father owns at the moment that he passes away. What if a father wants to give a gift to someone while he's alive? Well, a person's allowed to give a gift to whomever he wants while he's alive. Say our rabbis, it is the right thing for a person to arrange their affairs in such a way that the heirs, that all of the children will get an equal amount. How do you do that? So here are two ways. One way goes like this. If I just take my assets and while I'm alive and divide them equally, I have four children, two sons, two daughters, I give them each an equal share, well, then the problem is, <laughs> what do I? I, I? I need to have something to live on. <clears throat> Once I've given it away, I don't have ownership over it, according to Jewish law. So there's a document that was formulated and is available. And by the way, if anyone needs any help with this, I'm happy to help. And it's a document that says as follows. I wish to give a gift of all of my possessions in equal shares to each of my children that will take place one hour before my passing. <laughs> when will that be? I don't know. <laughs> but there is a legal way to write such a document, and it is a valid document. And by doing that, what happens is I'm not leaving any inheritance. Because at the moment of passing, there's no estate. It was all given away one hour before. There's another method to doing this, and it goes as follows. I write a document that says as follows. Let's say I have two sons and two daughters. Let's just say, to take, make it easier, that the daughters are older, the sons are younger, so there's no double share to a firstborn son. Two daughters, two sons. I go to my two sons, and I say to them, here's the story. Here's the deal. Um, you may not have known this, but you actually owe... I, I, I actually owe my daughters $5 billion. You didn't know about it, but I owe them $5 billion. In Jewish law... I am allowed to create an obligation, a monetary obligation on myself, even if there was no actual event that caused it. If I say, if I say in the presence of witnesses, I owe you $100, that is a legally binding statement. You can take me to Bezin to, to collect it. So, I say 
I owe my daughters, if my estate is a million dollars, I say a billion dollars, or whatever, a, a larger amount. Then I say to my sons, here's the story. If you agree to abide by my conditions that all four sons, uh, that all four children get an equal share, I will forgive the debt. And it will be forgiven. I'll erase it. And you each take an equal portion. But if you want to insist that you should be the only heirs, because according to the Torah, because according to the Torah, only the sons inherit, not the daughters, if you want to insist on that Torah law, then that's fine. But they come first. I have to satisfy that obligation, and of course you're going to get nothing. <laughs> so that is also a legally binding document. It's called Hischaivis, creating an obligation. That's another way to ensure that in a valid way, according to Jewish law, all the children will inherit equally. Of course, both of those can be done with the children and, 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 and a wife as well. Same thing. Well, why don't they call it a gift instead of a... That's what it's called. That's what, and that is what it will be called. It will be called a gift. It's not a debt. It's not like he... Uh, he says, I owe my my daughters. Well, it has to be owe, because if it's a gift... No, if he's saying, you know, he wants to get uh, one well, alive... Because, because I can't... Because I can't... In Jewish law, I can't give a gift after my death. But I can create an obligation now. I can't give the gift now, because if I give the gift now, I won't have it for myself. I can create an obligation now. Oh, it's a good point. Okay, so so that is the recommended method and let me just say according to Jewish law this is an important thing that if a person that a person is encouraged to have one of these documents, if they have sons and daughters, to have one of these documents so that each of the children will inherit. And the Rambam says, and this is very, very important, it is extremely important to, to, to arrange that all of the children should inherit equally, and even if for some reason there's a machlokas, or there's an argument, or there's an estrangement, it doesn't matter, it's extremely important. You don't, the Rambam says you don't want to recreate the terrible tragedy that happened with Yaakov showing favoritism to Yosef over the other brothers and remember all the jealousy and the <coughs> hatred and, and the whole persecution in Egypt that, that came from that. You don't want to recreate that. Give everyone equally, even if there's a reason not to. Give everyone equally. Okay. Now, we're halfway done. Does Jewish override Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the second half. Now. Let me ask you a question. Why do you have to worry about this document or that document? Go to your notary and write a will. <laughs> write a will. And in your will you could say whatever you want. Let's say, for example, I want to leave my estate to all four of my children, two sons, two daughters, equally. Write a will. And if I wrote a will, why shouldn't that be valid? 
Well, now we have an interesting question. Because we have a document that is valid according to secular law, a notarial will in Quebec, but it violates Torah law. Because the Torah says, if there are sons and daughters, the sons inherit, the daughters do not. So, which way should I go? Should I follow secular law? Should I follow Jewish law? Well, one approach would be to say, well, in a clash between Jewish law and secular law, we have to follow Jewish law. But another approach would say, hold on a second, there is a concept in Jewish law called Dina de Malchus Adina, which means the law of the land is the law. Which means that according to Jewish law, I am required to follow the laws of Quebec and the laws of Canada. If this document is valid according to the laws of Quebec and Canada, maybe that should take priority. So now we have to discuss the question, when does Dina de Malchus Adina apply? And when do we say, no, the Torah laws apply? For example, last Sunday was a holiday in Canada. Canada Day. Not supposed to work. Office has got to be closed. What happens if I want to work? I know what happens to me if I work. My wife says that she's going to call the police to have them come and arrest me because I'm working on Canada Day. I know what's going to happen. But here's the question. Did I violate... So I know I got myself in trouble at home. Okay. But did I violate Jewish law? Did I violate Dina the Malchus Adina? The, the Malchus, the secular law says no work. I want to work. The answer is no. I don't violate... Just like I don't violate Dina Malchusadina if I work on if if I if I if if I if I observe Shabbos. Right? Quebec says the store is allowed to be open on Shabbos. Yeah. Does that mean I'm allowed to be open on Shabbos because Quebec says it's okay? Of course not. Because when it comes to keeping Shabbos, Dina Malchusadina does not apply. That's an easy case. Let's take another case. When it comes to paying taxes. When it comes to paying taxes, everyone agrees, Dina Malchus Adina applies. That means that if a person does not pay the correct amount of taxes that Quebec and Canada say they have to pay, not only are they in danger of being uh, penalized by Quebec and Canada, they also violated Jewish law. So, for example, if somebody wants to know in order to be a witness in a betin, in a court, a Jewish court, you have to be an honest person. You have to be a person that's not a thief. A thief is disqualified. If a person accepted cash and didn't declare it and didn't pay taxes, if a person illegally avoided taxes, of course you're allowed to do whatever's legal to minimize your tax bill, but illegally avoided paying taxes, they're a ganaf, they're a thief. And that means they're not allowed to serve as a witness in a bezdin. What about inheritance? Which way does it go? Does it follow the laws of the Torah or does it follow the laws of Dina Malchus Adina? 
Well, this becomes a very, very complicated subject with a very, very deep difference of opinion that I want to share with you, and it's going to come back to our part. So, one opinion says, Dinar Malchusadina covers monetary stuff. It doesn't cover ritual stuff. It covers monetary stuff. Taxes. <coughs> monetary stuff. Business. Any kind of business stuff. The, how you do business. It, you refer to the laws of, of commerce in the place where you live. Dinar Malchusadina covers that. Inheritance is monetary. It's about money. It's about money. So it should follow the normal rule, and therefore, if a person writes a secular will, you don't need anything else. Just write the secular will. That's all you need. Who says that? Ramosha Feinstein says that. Very important authority. This is one of the minority of cases where most halakhic authorities, many halakhic authorities disagree with Ramosha Feinstein. But that's what Ramosha Feinstein says. A person who wants to rely on Ramosha Feinstein, you can't fault them. By the way, I saw this somewhere. Rav Yosef Salvechik, the Rav of blessed memory, Rav Salvechik, he relied on a secular will. He did not write any kind of halakhic will. Very interesting. That was attested to by his children. But what was the point of having a, uh, the Torah tell us otherwise if we're going to ignore it? You're not ignoring it. Why? You're, you're not ignoring it because just like in di- any area of Dina Malchusadina because the halacha is that I'm required to f- the, the Torah law will apply in a society where that is the secular law. But the but law is the, children, the sons have to inherit everything. Only in a society where that is a secular law. But when you're in a place where Dina Malchusadina applies, you're required to follow. Dina Malchusadina comes first. That's 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 the halacha in any case where Dina Malchusadina applies. Now, a large number of halakhic authorities disagree with that, and they say no. Inheritance is not only a monetary matter. What's the proof? The proof is in our Parsha. If you turn, please, to page 886. Page 886, we were here before. This is the whole story of the daughters of Tzlovkod. They ask the question. God comes with the answer. Here's what happens. If they're only daughters, they inherit equally. Look at the last the, the, the last Pasuk, Pasuk number 11. Well, I'm sorry. Start at Pasuk 8. God says, if a man dies and does not leave any sons, but he leaves daughters, the inheritance goes to the daughters. That's Pasuk 8. Pasuk 9, if he does not have sons or daughters, then his estate goes to his closest relative, his brothers. 
If he doesn't have brothers, then it goes to, and then you keep going outward, outward to the closest relative, and you find the closest relative, and that's who the, the heir is. Pasuk uh, 11, if he doesn't have any uh, cousins, then you give the inheritance to the closest relative, and then the last line, and this should be for the Jewish people, mishpat, for, I'm, I'm using the art scroll translation for a second, which is not a good translation, but I'm using it on purpose. And this shall be for the children of Israel as a decree of justice, like God commanded Moshe. This is the decree of justice of what God said. This is the laws of inheritance. Says Rav Herschel Schachter, a great scholar and authority who's living today, and he is interpreting the words of the Rambam. I'm no one, I'm, I'm dust beneath the heels of Rav Herschel Schachter, but I do want to point out that it is possible to disagree with Rav Schachter's understanding of the words of the Rambam. That's not me, God forbid, but there are others who disagree. But I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Rav Herschel Schachter. In his understanding of the Rambam, which goes like this. The word chok and the word mishpat are synonyms. They're both translated as law. A chok is a law and a mishpat is a law. But they are synonyms with different connotations. The connotation of mishpat is a civil law, a monetary law, and the and the and the the association or the implication of the word chok is a ritual law or a spiritual law. The laws of keeping kosher would be defined as a chok while the laws of being honest in your business practices would be defined as a mishpat. Two words, same translation, but different association. If the laws of inheritance were purely monetary and thereby covered by the laws of Dina Malchusadina, law of the land is the law, it would have referred to these laws of inheritance as a mishpat. However, seeing as the Torah refers to them as chukas mishpat, the word chuk is there, that teaches us that this subject is not just monetary, there is a spiritual, ritual component to it. And therefore, it should be treated not like a monetary subject subject to Dinamachusadina, but like a spiritual, ritual subject not subject to Dinamachusadina. And therefore, according to Roshachter, a secular will is not valid because of Dina Malchusadina. Dina Malchusadina does not apply. Just like Dina Malchusadina doesn't apply to observing Shabbos or keeping kosher, it doesn't apply to wills. If you would say to me, but what is the spiritual uh, ritual nature of inheritance? I would go back to what we said at the beginning that 
It's not only the transfer of money, it is also the mechanism of automatic transfer to provide for harmony within the family at a very difficult and vulnerable moment to provide a structure within the family that they should be able to continue and have guidance and leadership and not be left bereft and subject to machlokas. Maybe that's it. Maybe there are other possibilities. <coughs> so, the, so there's a machlokas. There's a, an intense disagreement. There are great people that simply rely on a secular will and they say like Ramosha Feinstein, like the Rav, that's it. And there are others that say, no, don't rely on have a halachic will document. So what does the halachic will document do? It says, for example, if you take the one that I mentioned before that is uh, a gift one, one hour before death, it says as follows. I wrote a secular will. A secular notarial will valid in Quebec. I, wa- I state in the presence of witnesses that even though I wrote that document, my intention is that the actual transfer of assets should take place as a gift one hour before my death. That's what I mean to do. And so although Quebec will call it an inheritance. I'm not calling it an inheritance. I'm calling it a gift in a way that is valid according to the Torah's laws. Sounds like semantics. Yes. Sounds, it is semantics. But it is valid according to Jewish law. And therefore, I don't even have to... I just fill out that document. And maybe I'll put it together with my will so that the heirs, when they find it, they'll see that it was done in accordance with Jewish law. Now, before I go further, I just want to point out that let's go back to these words because, and again, I'm nothing to disagree with these great people, but I'm not convinced. I see two words there. Chukas Mishpat. Chok Mishpat. Let me just be very simplistic. If there are two words, who's to say Chok is the controlling word? Maybe the word Mishpat is the controlling word. The word Mishpat is there. It says Mishpat. And by the way, it doesn't say, I'm, God says I'm giving this to you as a Chok and a Mishpat or a Chok slash Mishpat. I'm giving to you as Chukas Mishpat. Now, now te- I'm not an expert of grammar, at, at, at Hebrew grammar. I'm, I'm very, very far from that. Maybe we can ask Ilana to help us with this next week. Chukas Mishpat, the word Chukas is modifying the word Mishpat. So it is a Mishpat, but it's the kind of a Mishpat that is a chukas mishpat. Well, okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's a chok or does that mean that it's a mishpat? It is not so clear to me what the words of the Pasuk mean to say. But
But in any event, even given that there is a lot of discussion about how to understand those words, and how you understand those words is the crucial issue on which this question revolves, notwithstanding any other conclusion, there are a lot of halakhic authorities that say that a person should have some kind of halakhic document. Rabbi, I, yes? I'm troubled by the fact that originally you had mentioned uh, that the whole purpose of not having a secular will is because it creates uh, friction among the recipients. The gift an hour before seems that it'll do the same thing. So, that's a very, very good point. So, here's one answer. I'm sure there are other answers, but here's one answer. One answer is that the Torah's laws were predicated on the sons fulfilling their responsibilities the way they're supposed to, and that started to deteriorate, so the rabbis wanted to step in. And the gift one at one hour before is meant to be used to give everyone equal. Everyone equal. No discrepancy. Seems to me the best way to avoid Machlokas is to give everyone equal. Now. So, I want to, this is practical, I want to advise you that every, it is the right thing for each person to have a halakhic will in whatever situation is relevant to them, of course, you could just say, I'm going to rely on the secular will like Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. <clears throat> By the way, there's another concept to rely on. There's another statement in the Talmud, mitzvah l'kayem divrei hames. It is a mitzvah to fulfill the instructions of one who has departed. If your father tells you something, after I pass away, I want you to do so-and-so, it is a mitzvah to do that. If I say to my children, I want you to divide my things equally among you, all four among you, it is a mitzvah for them to fulfill that. Well, why don't we just rely on that? And by the way, the fact that I wrote a secular will seems to indicate I'm telling you this is what I want you to do. So that means, forget about for, for leaving aside the Torah, leaving aside all the mitzvahs, the son, if they're two sons and two daughters, they should see that will and they should say, you know what? Maybe according to, to the Torah, I'm really entitled to the whole thing, but my father gave this instruction, I'm going to voluntarily give up half of my assets, half of the inheritance, so that my father's wishes are fulfilled. Well, in an ideal world, that's what should happen. But... But it doesn't work like that. And here's the reality. The reality is, I've said this many times, the reality is when a person passes away, it is very, very common for the children to argue over money. The more money, the more the argument. I want to repeat that. You would think you're getting $15 million. At 15 million, you, if you tried, you couldn't spend it. The more money, the more arguing. More families are broken apart over arguing over inheritance than any other single issue. I've seen this over and over and over again. Now, I want to just share this last thing with you, and I'm going to finish with this. 
we know that the mitzvos that we perform while we are alive, they create benefit and merit for us and ripple effects. A person could do a mitzvah and it continues to ripple outward. If I teach somebody alabes, that means that every word of prayer that person will ever read in their whole lifetime, I get a share in that mitzvah. Because it all comes from, from my teaching them alabes. If I save somebody, then everything that person goes on to do, positive, it's because of me. I share in that mitzvah. The same thing happens in reverse. There are things that we put in motion in our lifetime that continue to ripple outward positively, but also negatively. And there are many, many things that we set in motion that continue to ripple outwards negatively far beyond our lifetime. Many, many examples. One of the most important things that a person can do in their lifetime is to prepare for the end of their physical life and to make decisions that will lead to harmony after their lifetime and not, God forbid, to machlokas. And if a person makes decisions in their lifetime, such as cutting someone out of the will, or such as, whatever it is, showing preference of one over the other, whatever it is, then all of the machlokas and all of the bitterness that will follow and can follow for generations. It's on my head. It is so important to leave a legacy of shalom. To leave instructions and whatever the vehicle, whatever the document, whatever the method, to leave a legacy that there should be shalom and harmony and God forbid not the opposite. And that's got to be the bottom line. The bottom line of all of the laws of inheritance in Jewish law is to try to find a way for shalom and not for machlokas. And that's the lesson that we learn from these two passages in the Torah. Thank you very much. Thank you.